Podcast. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Really, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. Step back for one minute and look at the big picture. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. The orphans bond a family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. <laughs> I don't do drugs. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host, Iris, and I am here with my older brother, Wesley. Today we're talking about a movie from 2014, It Follows. Are you sure this movie is from 2014? Did this movie feel like it was set in 2014? No, so this film, it felt like it was set in a amalgamation of times. So mixing technology and and cars and things like that was meant to evoke a timelessness. Was it more confusing or was it successful in its attempt to be more timeless and thus to not have it be dated? If that was the intention, I don't think it worked. The CRT TVs, or in some cases like TVs stacked on top of TVs, was really quite specific of an 80s time period. I never thought of that idea. Was that like a common thing where people had multiple TVs to look at? Because I want to do that now. Every time I get a TV, I toss out my old TV, and I should use it for stacking purposes. Kelly won't let me have a bathroom TV. Well, that's what you have a phone for. Yeah, but I want it to sync, like where you have whatever movie you're watching in the bathroom so that you go into the bathroom, you don't have to hold your phone, and you can just watch it. But you have to have someone who will allow you to mount a TV in their bathroom. Yeah, well, that's something you got to work out with Kelly. Yep, working on it. The When they're playing with time with the different props and stuff, it did make me think about horror and suspense movies from other times. They were trying to evoke a non-specific era, but it also employed a lot of cinematic techniques that I think harken back to 70s or 80s horror movies without a lot of special effects or flash. There aren't many great horror movies, contemporary horror movies. And even how things like Halloween and The Shining, they look really dated. Friday the 13th, everyone running around in dolphin shorts. They might look dated in terms of fashion, but all that fashion's coming around and the storytelling still holds up. Uh, yeah, well, that's why they endure, and that's why we we have them around long enough to be like, ooh, we wore that? People wore that, those clothes, that hair? Because the storytelling endures. And I think that right. It Follows has a strong premise that can and will endure. So let's classify It Follows. Does it qualify as a slow zombie movie? I guess so. I mean, you know, what qualifies as a zombie in these days? We're long past the eating of brains, right? And we went from the eating of brains to the maniacal fast-running zombies. But yeah, it's reminiscent of Romero and Night of the Living Dead and the slow-walking zombies that were so scary, where you have time to formulate a plan uh, to get yourself out of trouble, but the onslaught is never-ending, right? They're never going to stop coming. Yeah, I think that characterizes a zombie, right? That they have a single purpose in their relentless pursuit and they're, I guess, the undead in this case because the curse or the STD or whatever you want to call it is personified. I think we can classify the it in It Follows as a zombie. 
for the purposes of this review, but the I wouldn't classify It Follows as a zombie movie per se, because you brought it up. Is it, in your opinion, a promiscuity parable? Is it a tale of anxiety and general restlessness? I did read in an, in an Amazon X-ray trivia factoid that a lot of the teenage issues are raised in this. Some of them are, are more subtle than others. Promiscuity is one of them, but also cutting, eating disorders, yeah, teenage angst and anxiety. In general, it runs the gamut of teenage issues. I mean, it sucks to be a kid for sure. I would hate it. I hated it when I was a kid and I, I would hate it now for sure. I love being a kid. You know what I realized about it, it Follows? Do you feel that in other zombie movies, in Romero in particular, and now in The Walking Dead, where you have a whole bunch of zombies, that they tend to fit into types? There's the naked young girl and the old guy in the business suit and the butcher still wearing an apron kind of thing. It's, it's never just anonymous <laughs> hordes, right? Well, butchers are already conveniently dealing with blood. Right. So if they're going to be contaminated, uh, that's probably how it's going to happen. Yeah, and prom queens all go carry. Yeah. And so let's call them followers, shall we, instead of zombies? Sure. I feel like the followers, a lot of them lo looked kind of dumb. Like, the old lady still stands in my memory as the most terrifying by far. Just that vaguely <laughs> looks like our grandma, horrifying, terrible gait in the nightgown where she's definitely not supposed to be out in public looking like that. It's just unsettling. And then we get the the girl with, I guess she had she was supposed to have teeth knocked out and black eyes and boob out and peeing on herself. What was with all the boobies? Right. So that's so, yeah, as opposed to the Terminator or the Unstoppable Force or as Jeff slash Craig or whatever his name was saying that it, it uses whatever it can to get close to you. It can be anyone you know. It could be a stranger in a crowd. Those followers, not at all subtle. It was like the tallest dude ever. And the creepy little kid and the girl with the boob out. And it was like, it was kind of distracting and over the top. It's like, we want them to, we want the follower to look scary. Whereas the older lady not wearing any makeup or anything was the scariest to me. The rules of the followers got bent. They weren't consistent. Oh, so bent. So after Greg's mom showed up with the boob out, I yep. was like, what's with the boobs? And then when the follower randomly appeared on the roof uh -huh. and he was also randomly full frontal naked yeah why was he on the roof there was no reason to be on the roof yeah the roof thing was random and i thought the naked thing was random and then i was like oh like is it all because it's all sex related well let's hope not because grandma was coming for her and uh that was not going to be pretty but they're, yeah, but they all want to do it. That's why they're like half naked or naked or full naked. Well, Greg's mom wasn't exactly naked. She had one boob out. It was like almost like they know that the 80s horror trope is that there's nudity and there's boobs in horror movies. And it's like, no, guys, you're not doing it right. The uh, the <laughs> protagonists are supposed to be the ones who are naked. And, and as Kelly mentioned, you know, naked and sex in horror movies is what gets you killed. And this kind of spun that. But as, as I guess I'm going to go with distasteful as the constant nudity was and the unnecessary nudity where everybody was like, you know, this look isn't hitting it just right for me. Let's have a boob out. But all that gets washed away because when we see the awkward scene of Greg's mom, like grinding on him. 
And he turns all gray, which doesn't the coroner wonder, like, why these people randomly show up dead and gray? No, there are no consequences in this horror movie, as with other horror movies. Nobody's coming to save Camp Crystal Lake. Nobody's coming to save the kids. They were the parents in this movie might as well have been like Charlie Brown, Peanuts parents. They just they were never shown. They felt 70s, 80s in that way. Yeah. kind of negligent parent generation. And so Greg getting boned to death, you know, for coroner purposes or whatever, it just falls in with them sabotaging the entire pool at the high school or them shooting people. And the fact that Jay climbs into Greg's house and leaves her fingerprints all over the windows in order to see him get killed by his mom. Yeah, I was surprised she didn't get questioned or anything about Greg's death. Like, after Greg's death, she pieces out and then she's basically like on the lamb. And so there was definitely a divestiture, if that's a word, of kids from the parents. These kids were kind of all alone in war-torn zombie Detroit. For Jay and Kelly specifically, I think that their dad was gone. So it was a single working mom. And her kids were, Jay was out of high school and Kelly, if she was in high school, had a job. So she was, you know, 16 or at least able to work. Like the kids were kind of on their own doing kid things like they did in the 70s and 80s. But for a film filled with like horny teens about a sex curse, there was kind of very little banging going on. I mean, Jay kind of got all the banging. (laughs) And even though Paul was checking out Jay and Greg was checking out Yara and Kelly was checking out Greg, there wasn't a lot of promiscuous sex. Well, not on screen anyway. A lot of it was implied. Neither was there a lot of death. There were only two actual bodies in this movie. Greg's and whose? Greg's and, and the girl in the beginning. And that was establishing the danger of the movie and kind of what the ride that we were in for. And everything else was just staying a step ahead of this relentless, slow, uh, creeping terror. Couldn't they have gotten a little bit more organized, a little bit more strategic about it? It seemed to me that there was enough information that they could get a plan for when the follower comes, when the follower follows. Like, even the the finale at the pool seemed a little underprepared. Like, don't you get on the same page beforehand and be like, hey, so when the thing shows up, you point at it and you keep your finger on it so that we can follow it. And if it doesn't decide to get in the pool, this is what we're going to do. Like she knew that they were slow, but Hugh tells her up top, they're not dumb. Right. Even though they were literally dumb. They were dumb? In that they didn't speak at all. Not one of them spoke. Well, like deep and dumb? Yeah. Deep and dumb. So they were slow and they could have been way more strategic. Like, how about we sit in a circle and we don't let Jay have a blind spot behind her on the beach? Right. Well, they also couldn't see it. But so I had thought about how to avoid the followers. And the best I could think of was that as long as you're going to be infecting people and if you have the decency, as Jeff did, if you can call this decency, to explain the rules and how Jeff, if he got it from some bar chick, how he knew the rules i don't know but still if you are in contact with the people that you infect because it's in your best interest for them not to be killed lest the thing come back after you then you start a text chain right get everybody in a group chat everybody checks in once a day Uh oh bob is uh he hasn't responded who's next in line (laughs) after bob uh fred please check in because like we don't because frank is next and and if fred doesn't check in then you know that eventually six people down the line it's coming for you but the kids weren't doing that the kids were uh only looking one step ahead and our director david robert mitchell even said he had been approached and fans had said to him that you know i like your movie but that pool scene was kind of dumb like why did they think that that would work and he said right it's the 
stupidest idea ever. But this wasn't me as an adult hashing these things out and figuring it out. These were scared teenagers who didn't seem to have the resources of assistance from their parents or authority or anything like that who are coming up with a plan and doing the best they can to try to make it work. The pool scenario and getting in the middle of the pool is something that high schoolers might do and surrounding the pool with stuff to, you know, it's the most dangerous thing ever for Jay to climb into that pool and then the rules get broken. So we see a plan that they'd set up thinking that that's the best course of action for them to trap and hopefully kill the follower and then it ends up using the appliances that they set all the way around the pool as projectiles toward Jay. So what we see is not, we don't get the plan that the teenagers hash out where they're like, okay, we've finally discovered the way to kill the monster. But instead we see their best guess at a plot and we see it fail spectacularly. That was when Jay was really in the most danger, not because she was in a pool full of appliances, but the fact that the monster was her dad, right? Yes. The fact that her dad follower was hurling television sets yeah like with brute force strength was really scary like that was i was jumping and like dodging and ducking in my (laughs) bed where i watched this movie like that was pretty i mean like irons toasters television sets like i just i thought she was just gonna get bludgeoned i think the iron hit her in the head or in the arm in the broken arm and it was scary but I feel like the scariest part about that was Jay freaking out. And they're saying, who is it? What does it look like? And she said, I, I don't want to tell you. And the fact that it was their dad was hit on so lightly. Like at best, we got a glimpse of the picture where you're like, oh, yeah, OK. Oh, that was the dad in the pool scene. Right. But yeah. if they had hit that harder, if we had been established with the dad and she had gone through her dad dying and then her dad shows up and starts throwing stuff, it could have been used more effectively. I've determined or I had read that the first nude follower that shows up is actually Jeff's mom. And he didn't he had been through this before in avoiding this thing. So he made no mention of the fact that his naked mom was coming right at Jay. Well, he does say that the followers use humans that you love. But how many of those followers were recognizable to you? Um, Was it only the mom? Was it only Greg's mom? So I knew Greg's mom. I didn't know about Hugh Jeff's mom. I Nobody did. There was no reference for it. Just like we didn't have any real hit on the fact that that was Jay's dad until much later when we catch a glimpse of a picture. Right. I think that Yara, I think that the follower used Yara once and also used like a demonic looking version of Paul at the beach when he breaks through the the shed that wasn't a little kid because paul kind of looks like a little kid but that looked like like the kid from malcolm in the middle i think (laughs) i think it was a demonic version of paul which i don't know why some of the followers were like demonic demonicized demon like you know some of the followers were all zombie and calm and then the paul zombie was like (laughs) right the hissing one. What struck me for this one, Quentin Tarantino said that this was one of the best premises for a horror movie in many, many years. For all the faults this movie has, the premise, I think, is so terrifying and would lend itself so well to subsequent movies, sequels, all that kind of stuff. I feel like it's just a base premise that could have been done in any decade and is really great. He voiced one of my concerns, which is that he found the rule breaking that you mentioned to be so frustrating that it almost hurt the movie in a way to set up such a tremendous premise where the idea is so great and you're so excited and only to watch them muck it up. 
and Tarantino said that you can't change the rules all of a sudden. The the it has a very linear path. This the follower, and it goes from point A to B, and then all of a sudden it's throwing stuff and it's on not the attacking, and things. So that was frustrating. It's invisible and it doesn't seem to have a form, but then it's knocking on doors and it's breaking through shed doors, but it doesn't have a form in the water. And Micah Monroe, our star who plays Jay, said she would be more than happy to return for a sequel. She would be excited about it. And I honestly feel like in the right hands, a sequel to It Follows could be The Empire Strikes Back for this series. But really, to hit it out of the park, maybe you need another perspective. Sure, we can attribute some of these to the decisions being made by Jay and her teenage cohorts. But there were also decisions in the movie that I took issue with. And yet, to hear our director, David Robert Mitchell, talk about the movie, this guy is incredibly self-aware. He knows exactly what he's doing, from what I can tell. He's very specific about camera movement. A lot has been made about the cameras in this movie Mm -hmm. and how well things are blocked and organized to give a spatial awareness of everything. The camera work alone elevated this film. And it lent it a certain sophistication that caused me to give more credence to it. When it pans, you get that juddery kind of effect, which ordinarily you pass by because that's a cinematic feel. But when you're looking for amongst a crowd of people for the follower, it's very hard to see and to track what's happening. And it's like, no, 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 pause the thing. Don't, we don't need a 360 pan. We need to be focusing on potential followers. Right. But that keeps you, it's intended to disorient you yes. or to have you peeking around the corner of the lens. And so that's the it's realization a part of that creating I, the suspense. Right. That I ultimately came to. Some of the limitations in even a widescreen presentation where we can't get full spatial awareness by darting our eyes back and forth, we have to wait for that excruciating pan of the camera to cover all the fields of vision that would, you know, give us a, a, a true assessment of the danger. The point is that our director knows exactly what he's doing. And for him to misstep in some of the ways that I think stylistically this movie does is confounding to me. This movie was unnecessarily gross in times, a little bit confusing. And because of the rule breaking, maybe it, it was it just served to shake things up. Because, yeah, if you have the one relentless follower who moves at X pace, then you can basically dance around that person. Right. You don't need to feel sheer terror. If you know that that thing is not going to catch you, even if you stumble, you can get up. And as long as you maintain social distancing, you're never going to get caught by the thing, right? So this leads me to the end where Paul and Jay are walking hand in hand down the street. And Jay has passed the curse to Paul and Paul has passed the curse to some prostitutes. And the prostitutes presumably have passed it on to at least one other person before they died. So they're like three steps ahead, right? maybe. And they and they've chosen to be a little less panicky about everything, which I had a little bit of hope for them. It seemed like they had accepted. I mean, once you accept that this is an incurable curse, uh-huh. that this isn't going away, then you start to figure out how you're going to manage it as opposed to just being so freaked out about it. I mean, you were definitely watching the person who at one point was walking behind them, kind of matching their pace. Maybe that was somebody, maybe that was nobody. Yeah, I think there were lots of somebodies who might have been nobodies in this, didn't you think? Well, yeah. Like in the deep background of scenes, you were like, hmm, I think that's a follower. 
And that's the horror, is the complete unknown. Once Paul goes to the hookers, which, by the way, was totally implied. We didn't see him actually shacking up with any of the hookers in the same way that we didn't see Jay swim out to the boat and bone those dudes because maybe she didn't. Because maybe when she said, you know, when Paul says, you know, you can pass it on, you already did once. And she said, yeah, but I shouldn't have. It seems like she didn't bone those dudes on the boat. Does it really matter? Does it make her unlikable if she did? No, and I'm not talking about the moral implications of her doing that. But regardless of whether or not Paul passed it on to the hookers immediately, you still can never tell. Even with layers of removal, if you don't have contact or your group chat, you're never going to know how close you are to being followed. That's true. So while we're there, and while so much of this hinges on Jay's ability to keep safe and Paul's ability to keep Jay safe, Paul, poor Paul, is a simp for the ages. This poor bastard. He, even know after the pool scene, after seeing Greg destroyed by his mom or, or finding out that that happened, and after the pool scene goes horribly awry, he tries to shoot an invisible Jay's dad and ends up shooting, is it Kelly, in the leg? Wow. After all <laughs> no, that. No, he shot Yara in the leg, yeah. which, by the way, when you see the gun pointed at you, oh, don't you get out of the way? Right, Because, but he can't see the dad either. There's nothing obscuring his vision we can see the dad appearing in, in the sheet or was the sheet blocking his view no this was before the sheet he shoots yara before kelly throws the sheet it, over him. it's such a teenager thing i i think but that's the least of paul's failings or his even after all that happens he's like are you sure you don't want a bone are you sure you don't want to pass it on to me because i like you so much that dude is never going to get anywhere in the world of women and while Jay lets him down easily, she was right in going straight to Greg because Greg, she thought at least would have a chance of passing it on. She said that she chose Greg because Greg wasn't afraid. But Greg wasn't afraid not because he was smart. He wasn't afraid because he was dumb and he didn't believe it even after all of the evidence. Oh, poor Paul. It was nice to see their friendship, the group's friendship, really, you know, prior to all of this going down. There was a real sense of, you felt like these were kids that grew up together. But as such, Paul eventually being the one would, is an inevitability, right? You're just waiting. This is like double bonus for Paul. He Not only does he get to do her, which he's wanting to do since, you know, the first kiss, but he also gets to save her. He contributed almost nothing. He was like the Forrest Gump of It Follows, without <laughs> any of the luck. He just like, I like you, Jay. And Jay's like... Uh, this probably isn't good a good idea. He's like, but well, why don't he, you love me? He, does, he doesn't move the needle in terms of protecting Jay or ultimately defeating this curse. But he does because he's so smitten. He is the first believer. And I think he helps pe get people on board when they're like, you're just experiencing PTSD. And he's like, no, I believe her. And that was probably important. So the fact that they're like sleeping with each other, everybody's everybody's having sex with each other at one time or another. Oh, you kissed me and then you kissed Kelly. That's kind of gross. I guess that's just something that I've aged out of. Just the idea of like, I don't know, we bone, we're like we're friends, but we boned once in high school. That's we're, we're, It's cool. I mean, you're friends with people you bone in high school. Yeah, but not, we don't. I'm not calling the kettle black much here. But, but we don't lay around on top of each other watching old movies or something. I mean, these kids are all alone in the middle of nowhere, you know, reaping the what they've sown for their indiscretions, for their 
you know, your sexual past follows you forever and, and all these things. And they're crippled by all these teenage angsty kind of things. And they're left to fend for themselves. It must be horrible. So you are implying that there's a moral consequence for their teenage indiscretions? For the sexual promiscuity, as imparted by this movie, I don't think that's the lesson to be learned. I think that that is just a circumstance of being a young person. And yes, it does come with its consequences, but it's an inevitability. Still, these people made poor decisions and are not out of the woods in terms of the danger because of those poor decisions. But kids are dumb. What are you going to do? <laughs> so it's unfortunate that kids are the target for in, in movies like this because they're too dumb to get themselves out of it. I mean, it, this is not unique to kids or, or limited to kids, right? I mean, Hugh could have slept with a, a cougar at the bar and it could have been passed on from an adult zone. It seemed kind of like a curse of Detroit in a way. I mean, Detroit was Detroit. You always talk about atmosphere as horror uh -huh. in scary movies. And I felt like blight was an atmosphere in this. And it almost felt like this curse somehow came along with the blight of Detroit. There's no better setting for this movie than in Detroit. It would be a different kind of movie, I guess, if the kids were out in the woods. I mean, I've been to Detroit in the dead of winter. Granted, I had pneumonia or something and I was hacking up pieces of my lung. But I remember Detroit as being a miserable place. And people, when I voiced that opinion, people from Michigan are like, no, it's actually one of the most beautiful places ever. And apparently Michigan in the fall and things in the, in the country is like one of the greatest places ever. But Detroit is a pretty rough looking city. I mean, at one point they were offering homes for writers to come and live for like a dollar if they would agree yeah. to stay for a year. Yeah, they had they did the same thing for artists and designers. I think one of Brian's primary designers bought a house or rented a house for nothing moved like three families in it was like a mansion and they all lived and worked out of the place detroit typifies the crumbling of previous generations of the glory of some of these houses gone to seed is and again it just establishes how thoroughly aware the filmmakers knew about what they were doing and how to present the aspects of dread and hopelessness and fear. The filmmakers knew what they were doing. The cinematography was, was actually quite sophisticated. But one of my main issues with the film is that there was no ticking clock. And at some point, it was either just before they go to the lake house or just before they devised their plan to go to the pool. I was like, all right, where is this going? And then I justify that by saying, okay, well, the idea is that this is an unending curse, that it is unstoppable. And we're not racing against time. We're basically just passing through the stages of grief and figuring out how to deal with this thing in a more logical, less panicked, less out of your, your gourd kind of way. Staying literally just steps ahead of death as long as you can. What I'm trying to say is that the virtues of the film, the things that worked made up for the things that didn't. And it was a good movie. Yeah, it sounds like you're edging toward a good movie pretty much the whole time. I saw It Follows before, and I always remembered it because the great concepts stick with you. And I think this is truly one of the best horror concepts ever. It suffers slightly in the execution, and I think there's a lot of potential for revisiting this concept. It's already been six plus years, so I really hope that that doesn't fall by the wayside. But, you know, like, like the great horror movies that really stick with us, it wasn't a lot of flash. There were some jump scares, but they didn't rely too heavily on those. It was only 1.3 million. 
And for a modest success of 20 plus million as of a few years ago, I'm sure it's more since then, um, it doesn't need to make a tremendous amount of money. But it definitely cements its place among, if not the best horror movies ever for me, certainly one of the best horror movies of this millennium. It's the one that sticks with me most for the, from millennium? the last... This new millennium since 2000. Oh. It's probably one of the best horror movies for me. So I tend to prefer a horror that's more stylish and thematically scary as opposed to gore. We didn't have gore per se in this except maybe for the first scene. But yeah, atmospheric horror... And this movie had that in spades, but also some grossness to where I didn't want to see the follower peeing on herself or the boobs out for everyone. It just seemed unnecessary. And so I feel like we got, you know, a shiny thing and it was great and has unlimited potential. And then they scuffed it up a little bit in the execution, but I'm definitely with you. This movie clears the line. I'm going to give it an all right and, and say that I wish and I hope that they will do more in the future. But, you know, for what it was... It was a great thing, but very rarely does true inspiration come and make it all the way into the hands of others without being tarnished in some way. You don't think the premise was maybe a little base or tacky? No, the, the, the lone concept of you moving inexorably towards death and the inverse of that being that death is coming for you and you are doing the best you can to stay one step ahead. The visualization of death as an old woman in a nightgown out of place lurching towards you to where you can't turn your eyes away or take a breath or go to sleep for eight hours. Terrifying. I mean, I get the imminent death, but this was more personified STD. But also, old women are scary. (laughs) Old people are scary. The fact that the imminent death is spread by adolescent sexual indiscretion not a little tacky so we're viewing it from different perspectives i think for an adult rational mature generation watching this movie we would see some of the larger themes of death where if a teenager is viewing it as a parable it's more like sex is bad and okay And so can it be tacky? Yes. I think that as tacky as this movie was at times, the theme was strong enough for me to overlook that tackiness by and large. I think people can get a lot of different things for this movie, and it's what you tend to project on it. Well, you know, Quentin Tarantino certainly doesn't thumb his nose at tack. That's true. But he didn't like, he wasn't concerned about the promiscuity parable. He was talking about, hey, you can't change the rules and make it throw stuff. Or why is it necessary for it to pee on itself? Or why is it on the roof? All right, so there you got it. An all right from Wes, one of the best horror films of the millennia. And a good from Iris. That's our review on It Follows from 2014, available to rent where you rent movies. Thank you for listening to our episode. Thank you for your support of Or Whatever Movies. We appreciate your listening and look forward to your feedback and movie recommendations. Let us know. Hit us up on orwhatevermovies.com. 818-835-0473. And happy Halloween. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, 
and live in a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab, an Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for The, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric Acid. 